appreciate the hospitality. This morning, I want to examine the challenges of being biblical in a pluralistic academy. And my title itself is pluralistic in that it can be interpreted in at least two ways. The academy is pluralistic in the first place because it has a plurality of academic departments. I was interested to learn uh, when teaching at the University of Edinburgh that when it was founded in the 16th century, there were only two professorial chairs, the chair of humanity and the chair of divinity. But 400 years later, when I showed up, there were dozens and dozens and dozens of academic specializations. I discovered departments of cognitive epidemiology, parapsychology, biotechnology, molecular plant science, astrobiology, Scottish ethnology, of course, intellectual and environmental history, and I could go on. Now the Bible, as a document of the university, could in principle be the object of study in multiple departments, and it was. You could take a course in the Bible as English literature, or if you were doing medieval studies, the Bible would be very important. But the usual place to find the study of the Bible, of course, is a department of religion or divinity. But it can show up in ancient Near Eastern studies, modern European history, philosophy, and many other disciplines. But my point is this, as a document of the university, the Bible is subject to whatever methods, disciplinary approaches, or worldview that happens to be a la mode, modern in fashion. Now, by the 19th century, Oxford University, like many others, had indeed become modern. The dominant force across the university was methodological naturalism, where you had to check your faith commitments at the door. Your faith didn't play a role in the doing of your discipline. The classic statement of methodological naturalism, as it pertains to biblical studies, is probably Benjamin Jowett's 1860 lecture on the interpretation of the Bible. Benjamin Jowett was Regis Professor of Greek at Oxford University and a clergyman. His lecture proposed reading the Bible, and this is the phrase he uses, like any other book. Reading the Bible like any other book. And subsequent scholars have obliged. So much so that a recent book by Michael Legaspi is entitled the death of scripture and the rise of biblical studies. And his main point is that in the university, you do not read the Bible as Christian scripture. You read it like any other book. And Legaspi actually talks about the difference between Christian scripture, the canon of the Old and New Testaments considered as the word of God, and on the other hand, the academic Bible, which is sort of a dead thing that scholars can do autopsies on. Everything changed again with the advent of the postmodern university. Many postmodern biblical scholars have given up the illusion that methodological naturalism is possible or that they could have come to the text with neutral objectivity. Postmoderns see the biblical commentary not in terms of serving faith, as in pre-modernity, or even in terms of serving knowledge, as in modernity, but rather as serving one's own or one's own interpretive community's will to power. So in the academy today, post-colonial and ideological criticism vie with various forms of historical criticism for bragging rights over who is reading the Bible rightly or justly. As Dorothy might say, Toto, I have a feeling we're not in 1860 anymore. 
Now, I have a pet theory, so be gentle with it. It's a, I like it. Um, but here it is. My theory is that there is no more telling cultural or intellectual barometer than the way people interpret the Bible. In other words, the Bible is a mirror, not in the sense I was looking at it last night in conversation with James 1, but rather a mirror in whose interpretation we see our passions and our preoccupations. Think about that. Every social trend, every academic fashion eventually shows up in the way people read the Bible and write commentaries. If you actually look at some of the commentary series that are out there, they reflect the interests of our day. Feminism, post-colonialism, Marxism, the environment, all have their champions in the area of biblical hermeneutics. Now, many of these approaches are helpful to the extent that they call our attention to something as readers that we may not have been aware of in the past. But my theory is that they first and foremost mirror cultural concerns and preoccupations, and these may or may not correspond to the interests of the texts themselves or to the intentions of the authors. Now I could say much more about the Bible as a document of the university, but that was all to say what my paper is not about. I want to spin my title in a different direction. And this morning I want to think about the role of biblical authority in a multidisciplinary university. In other words, I want to ask the question, how can Christian scholars be biblical in disciplines other than biblical studies? That's the question I want to think about in the context of our conference on worldview. So I'm now at my working hypothesis under point one. My hypothesis is that what the Bible primarily provides is not packets of data that each discipline needs to work with, but rather the overarching and ultimate interpretive framework for understanding the data that the disciplines are thinking about the overarching framework for understanding scientific data. Social imaginary, meet intellectual imaginary. That's what I want to talk about this morning. So one of the most important strategies for reclaiming the university for Jesus Christ is to make his story, the control story, for our thinking about ultimate reality and every aspect of reality. This does not mean that biblical scholars and theologians get to lord it over all the other academic disciplines. It's rather that the Christian worldview is what holds a university curriculum together and makes it unified rather than diversified. So theology, as I see it, is not so much the queen of the sciences, but to continue the chess metaphor, the bishop that works and moves laterally across the disciplinary ranks, making interdisciplinary connections. The task of theology in a university is to claim that Jesus Christ is Lord and then to suggest and proclaim that this claim is determinative for everything Christian scholars do. Let me explain point B now the triune economy of light. There is a unity that undergirds disciplinary plurality. And here I'm going to draw on a 13th century theologian, Saint Bonaventure, and his treatise on the reduction of the arts to theology. On the reduction of the arts to theology. This is his attempt to do Christian worldview thinking in the context of a 13th century university. And he wants to be biblical, and he begins by citing James 1.17. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down 
from the Father of lights. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. His treatise is an exposition of that verse as a kind of rallying call to the university. Because for Bonaventure, the intellect is itself God's outstanding gift to creatures. And all forms of knowledge have one overarching purpose, and that is to lead us back to God, the giver of light and the giver of all good gifts. So the word reduction in his title, on the reduction of the arts to theology, that might worry us, and rightly so, but I need to say that it doesn't mean what we often mean by reductionism. It actually is a translation, I guess a literal translation from the Latin term reducere, to lead back. So it's about, it's all, the title could be translated on leading back the arts to theology. You see, intelligence comes from God and leads back to God. Or that's Bonaventure's thesis. That's what ought to happen. And so light comes from God, illumines us, and we need to remember what the source of light is. So Bonaventure's reduction is all about following the light we see in the university across the disciplines, following that light back to its ultimate source. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So the light we have in any discipline, whatever light there is, should be able to be traced back to its source in God. I think that's an inspiring vision for a Christian university. So now three theses about this triune economy of light, the way that God distributes his light. So the one God is the eternal life of Father, Son, and Spirit. And Father, Son, and Spirit have perfect communion in and of themselves. Their life is a life of communication. They're making all things common. That's what communication is. God enjoys perfect light and life in himself, but in love, God decided to communicate some of his light and goodness to creation. This is so important, you see, because the universe is neither self-starting, self-sustaining, or self-explanatory. The universe is wholly dependent upon God. God is the ground of everything that is. The universe is contingent, didn't have to be. It's a free creation, it could have been different. And just because it is contingent, we now have to pay attention to the way it actually is to trace back the goodness in it to its creator. Bonaventure and Christian theologians in general know that the works of the triune God are inseparable. That is, everything God does is the joint work of all three persons. God spoke the universe into being, but the spirit was hovering over the waters. And we know from John 1 that all things were made through him, the Logos, and in him, the Logos, all things hold together. Colossians 1.17. The universe is a triune work. Herman Bavink puts it like this. He says, the mind of the Christian is not satisfied until every form of existence has been referred back to the triune God and until the confession of the Trinity has received the place of prominence in all our life and thought. Did you catch that? He says, the mind of the Christian is not satisfied until every form of existence, we could add every object of knowledge, has been referred back to the triune God. That referred back is exactly what Bonaventure meant, means by reducing, leading back to. So do you see that what's happening here? Every good gift, every 
Every photon of light we have in the university needs to be referred back or traced back to God, its giver. So if we're to practice what Bavink preached, then we have to see knowledge like everything else as part of the biblical story. We need to have a theology of human intelligence. We need to see the mind itself as created by God, fallen, departing from God, and then regenerated and reconciled to God. It's only thanks to the spirits shining the light of the word in our minds that our Christian intellects are wide awake to what is real. So, point two, God is light, the light of reason and truth, and he is the one who enables our intelligence to come to know things. God is light, the ground of of all creation, but also the grammar of creation, the grammar of the university. By that I mean God is the principle of intelligibility of all things. So as I've been saying, if we're to recover the authority of scripture and the story it tells, we also have to see the human mind as a created and regenerated part of that story. The late English theologian John Webster puts it like this, Theology and universities are elements in the unfinished history of the redemption of human intelligence. The university itself is caught up in the story of what the triune God is doing to restore creation to its fullness. The university should be part of that story. We also know from Romans 1 that people often suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This is a great challenge for the university. How will it play its part in God's story? Will it come to its senses and appreciate the father of lights? Or will it repress the truth in unrighteousness? God is light, 1 John 1, verse 5. The created order reflects his light. The heavens declare the glory of God. Yet sinful hearts are lost in darkness. Hosea 4.1 says, There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. How can we know other things rightly if we're blind to the ground and grammar of the universe. But thanks be to God, who in his mercy has communicated his goodness and light to a darkened world. The psalmist says, in your light we see light. Psalm 36, 9. And again, all three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, are involved in this economy of light. Economy meaning household order, what God does to put his house, creation, into right order. The economy is the work of the triune God to put his house into right order. Again, this is a triune economy. All three persons of the Trinity are involved in this work of distributing light to creation. Paul tells us in 1 Timothy 6.16 that the Father dwells in unapproachable light. And yet the gospel is the story of him sending his son who is the true light into the world. John 1.9. The Nicene Creed picks up on this language and identifies the Son as light of light, very God of very God. John 8, 12 identifies Jesus, and he says this about himself, I am the light of the world. Those who come to know Jesus are transferred into the kingdom of light, and the Holy Spirit's role is key because it is he who shines into our hearts the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. 
You see, without the Spirit's illumination, humans would be in the dark as to the big questions of life. I have a stamp, uh, a postage stamp. I don't know what year it was issued by the United States. And it's a, there's a flame. I think it's a dollar stamp, so it's an important one. But the caption is, the light of reason, the light of reason. And secularists maintain that human reason supplies its own light. Christians have to disagree here. As I've said, sinners repress the truth and unrighteousness. Every good and perfect gift, every glimmer of light is a gift from the Father of lights. Point three, God wants us, students, scholars, people in the university, God wants us to be lights, people who can receive the light and pass the light on. Again, the light being knowledge. Knowledge, it's been said, is power, and knowledge can be used for good or evil. This is important for being biblical in the university, because the university exists not simply to dispense knowledge or to get as much of it as we can, but to cultivate the right use of knowledge. So I think Christian academics have to do more than learn things. <laughs> We're to teach students, but that involves more than informing them. University education is also about formation, turning people into the kind of people who know what to do with the knowledge they acquire. How do we use knowledge to edify others and glorify God? I believe, with Erasmus and many others, that the renewal of education is a vital condition to the renewal of society. I also believe, though, that the key to renewing education is orienting it to wisdom. And this requires the study of scripture and the fear of the Lord and our indwelling the intellectual imaginary of scripture, the worldview it communicates. Wisdom and understanding are first cousins. We get understanding when we're able to see how things fit together into larger wholes, the big picture. And faith enables this understanding by pointing us towards the whole in whom all things consist. It's this story I've been talking about of what God is doing in Christ to renew all things. So I've been talking about Bonaventure and his vision of the university and his thesis that all human knowledge ultimately is there to help us back in our journey to the Father of Lights. And then point C, scripture too is a graciously given ingredient in this economy of light. The psalmist says that it is a light unto our academic path. Well, he didn't say academic, but I think it counts. Scripture alone is the divinely authorized account of what God is doing in the world. And so it's a guide for understanding everything that happens in this great theater of the world. Now, sola scriptura often gets a lot of bad publicity. I think that's because a picture of what it's saying holds many people captive. Scripture alone, it maybe suggests an individual by him or herself trying to read scripture without consulting any help, not even the little notes in a study Bible, or maybe that counts, I'm not sure. But that's not what the Protestant reformers meant by sola scriptura. They meant that scripture alone, not the only authority, scripture is the supreme court, but there are lower courts that have a role to play, and this is where I think we should locate the academic disciplines. So scripture alone doesn't mean we shouldn't go to university. <laughs> scripture alone means it's the supreme story, and all the other academic disciplines are ingredients in its account of what's going on. 
So scripture alone, we might say, applying it to our topic today, scripture alone provides the unifying vision of a university. That's a historical claim, by the way. The universities arose in medieval Europe in close connection to the church. People were coming to study with masters of their topics, and the university arose out of the cathedral school. This is documented history. So I think that's fascinating. Is there another possibility for a unifying center of a university other than scripture? So I think it's an important question for us today. Now, um, I need to make one cautionary note here. I've just made a big plug for Sola Scriptura, but rightly understood, scripture isn't uh, an academic textbook like other textbooks. The temptation of what we might call naive biblicism is to think that scripture is the only textbook we need. And sometimes this leads people to ask questions of scripture that it wasn't really intending to answer. So I've said scripture is authoritative in the university. Scripture alone holds the university together, but the key question is how? And my proposal is that we view scripture as the story that informs and transforms the intellectual imaginary, the big picture that holds the university together. Okay, now Roman numeral two. How does this actually work out in practice? I'm struck by the Belgic confession that says we know God by two books. They say the universe is like a beautiful book in which all creatures, great and small, are as letters to make us ponder the invisible things of God. The universe, the book of nature, is the first book. But the second book, of course, is scripture. And the Belgic Confession goes on to say, it must never be forgotten that even on the view that Bible and nature, since they come from the same God, cannot be in conflict, it's quite possible for the exegesis of the two to come into conflict with each other. That wasn't the Belgic Confession, that was Bavink. I often get them confused. But, but he's, Bavink is making an important point here. Both books, the book of nature and the book of scripture, come from God. They will never conflict. There will be no ultimate conflict between the way the world is and what scripture says. But on the level of exegesis of these two books, there will be conflict. Our interpretations will come into conflict, but the books themselves are both authored by God. In other words, and this is important for us as well as scientists we want to talk to, conflict arises only because either the text of the book of scripture or the text of the book of nature is often poorly understood. That's why there's conflict. Again, what this means is that being people of intellectual virtue, people who take our time and aren't hasty and careless, but really pay attention and prayerfully attend to what is there, having these intellectual virtues is just as important in the natural sciences as in the biblical studies departments and everywhere in the university. As we read in the book of Proverbs, pride goes before reductionism. That's not quite what it says, but reductionism is a kind of pride. It's the prideful belief that your way of looking at things or your discipline alone gets to the heart of the matter. So don't confuse what Bonaventure means by reduction, which means leading back to reductionism, which means shrinking down, shrinking down knowledge and reality to what your discipline or what your theory can see. 
That's a very different prospect. Bad reductionism is a myopic tendency to explain complex phenomenon in terms of one theory only. It's a massive simplification that really distorts reality. I keep quoting scripture the wrong way. Let me do it again. Little children, keep yourselves from reductionism. Now, reductionism can go both ways. A physicist may say there's no soul because he reduces reality to matter in motion. But a theologian would be wrong not to pay attention to what the physicist says. If we denied matter in motion, we fall prey to one of the oldest heresies of the book, Gnosticism, that thinks that all of material reality is the source of evil. We need to make sure that we are good exegetes as well as the scientists. Uh, point two under uh, A, one of the causes of apparent conflict between the biblical story and the natural sciences is a failure to distinguish physics from metaphysics or science from scientism. You see, many people today in our culture think that just because science has proven so successful instrumentally, again, I was reminded in this film, First Man, of how amazing it is to calculate everything you need to know to get someone onto the moon. <laughs> that is an amazing feat. And we're gonna celebrate the 50th anniversary of the moon landing next year. It's amazing that we sent someone to the moon. But too many people think that just because science can do that, that it must have privileged access or privileged knowledge to the way all of reality is. That's a false inference, that's a fallacy. No amount of physics can establish a metaphysical proposition. No amount of physics can establish a metaphysical proposition. And metaphysics is the study of ultimate reality. No amount of study of matter in motion can give you the authority to declare what ultimate reality is. They're, they pertain to different orders of discourse and different orders of being. To think that physics can establish a metaphysical conclusion is to commit the worst intellectual error of all. It's a category mistake and a fallacy. So just because you're a scientist who can send someone to the moon, it doesn't give you the authority to say all reality is matter in motion. Material, materialist naturalism, the idea that all there is is physical stuff, that's a faith. Science can't prove that. It's a faith, or you might say it's a cleverly devised myth, cleverly disguised as science. And that's what I mean by scientism, the ideology that believes that science is omnicompetent. I want to give science its due. I respect science. Again, put someone on the moon. But that doesn't mean it's omnicompetent. And this is one of the most tempting reductionisms of our time, the idea that we can reduce metaphysics to physics. Now some thoughts about the human sciences. Because to be honest, most of the conflict today between Christian faith and science or a secular university is not over the natural sciences, it's over, about, it's over us. <laughs> The nature of human being is where a lot of the real action is these days. So we need biblical wisdom in order to understand what we are as human creatures. And in addition to the natural sciences, we have the human and social sciences. And again, that's a, an amazing thought, isn't it? A science of the human. But is there really a department in a university that tackles the question who is living the good life? What does the good life uh, consist of? And how do I become good? 
Are there departments in the university tackling those questions? Well, we have to answer them, you see, because human beings are in the world condemned, as it were, to act. Dallas Willard, who has written on the Christian university, says, the human problem is to find in knowledge a solid basis for action. The human problem is to find in knowledge a solid basis for action. Call it the drama of human existence. We all have to live. We all make choices. Either we make intelligent, informed, wise choices, or we do like everybody else. We fall into step with the masses. We roll along in well-worn social ruts. Do you really want to let the masses or popular opinion determine how you should live? In the old days, a liberal arts education was supposed to be an education in the use of your freedom. It's liberal, it has to do with freedom. The liberal arts, how to use our freedom in order to flourish. The natural sciences studied physical causation. The human sciences explore what we do with our freedom. So can universities tell us today what we should be doing with our freedom in order to flourish? This is an enormously important perennial question. How then should we live? Do university degrees help you to answer that? The Bible does. The Bible is our holy script. As I was saying last night, it provides orientation as to why we're here as individuals and the church, and it gives us directions for how to walk each day. I also think the arts uh, have a vital role to play in orienting students to reality as it is and is being renewed in Christ. Again, last night I was saying that culture cultivates and that what it grows is a social imaginary, a storied framework that generates and governs the way people live. And the arts matter too. I'm thinking of poetry and musician, music and painters because these disciplines, when they express a Christian worldview, minister reality. They minister reality too. They can help us grasp the meaning of the whole, the mystery of human existence. And that's something that physics can't. Eugene Peterson, a pastor, commends poetry for pastors. This is a striking thought. He says the theologian's best ally is the artist. We must see the imagination as an aspect of ministry. And he said that if he was in charge of a seminary and could set up a curriculum, he'd spend a whole year making students study a couple of great poets. He says, I'd insist that students learn how to read poetry, learn how words work. This is a way to grasp the meaning of the whole. I've been using the term imagination a few times yesterday and today, and I want to clarify that I think the imagination is a cognitive faculty. It's an aspect of our mind or even reason. It's that part of our reason that's particularly good, not at taking things apart, that's analysis, but at seeing how things fit together. When you have that eureka moment, aha, it's usually a statement that accompanies making a connection between things. And when you make enough connections between things, you see things united in a meaningful whole. So the imagination helps us to see how God is uniting everything in Christ. I think it takes imagination to read the Bible well. All right, now point three, some implications for a Christian university. So scripture alone doesn't necessarily give us the particular data 
than information that the, the distinct sciences do. But scripture alone gives us the deep background that allows us to think about the ground, the grammar, and the goal of our disciplines. John Webster, the theologian I mentioned earlier, says, for a regenerate intellect, there are no secular studies because there is nothing in this universe that cannot be traced back to God as its principle. Uh, footnote, nothing but evil. <laughs> evil can't be traced back. So a faith-based university provides a unique context for scholars to think Christianly across the entire spectrum of knowledge. At every point, tracing back, leading back all intelligibility to the one through whom and for whom all things were made. Now, this is challenging. Many Christian scholars get their PhDs from secular institutions, and they may have inadvertently picked up certain naturalized versions of their disciplines. So the learning curve is steep, but it's certainly worth climbing. Implication two. Every Christian scholar, not just philosophers, ought to follow Alvin Plantinga's advice to philosophers to let faith, rather than secular concerns, set your discipline's agenda and dictate its methods. Plantinga gave a very courageous inaugural address when he became a professor of philosophy at the University of Notre Dame. It was entitled, Advice to Christian Philosophers. And this was his advice. Don't let other people set your agenda as Christian philosophers. And that courageous stand he took eventually led to the founding of the Society for Christian Philosophers, which is a very flourishing and important society. I wish there was that kind of institution for other disciplines. There are scholars in certain disciplines like English and literary theory that need to hear Plantinga's advice and take it to heart because we all imbibe the prevailing assumptions about our disciplines as grad students, even when those assumptions may not mesh with our Christian convictions. And by the way, this is true even of biblical scholarship and theology, especially in places where the Bible is studied like every other book. I felt this at Cambridge during my doctoral studies. I basically was told or led to believe that I couldn't make a statement about God until I had got my epistemology and hermeneutics in respectable order, which meant, in that context, buying into a secular theory that was respectable. That was a form of captivity. I finally broke out. So Plantinga's advice is really for all scholars, again, including biblical scholars and theologians. He says, in these academic areas, it's up to Christians who practice a relevant discipline to develop the right Christian alternatives. And another philosopher, C. Stephen Evans, makes the same point, but puts it a little differently. He says, in the grand tournament of narratives, we Christian scholars must not lose our nerve. And then one more person who's written a lot on Christian worldview and the university, Craig Bartholomew, he puts it this way. Christian scholarship must insist on doing its work in Christ and should not make the mistake of yielding the epistemic foundations and only then trying to reach Christian conclusions from alien starting points. It's like being in a boxing match with one hand behind your back. Implication three, radically Christian scholarship requires persons whose minds and hearts have been reformed by God's word and renewed by God's spirit. Disciples prepared to follow Christ where he leads in the disciplines. This is radical stuff. Radical both because it gets to the root 
of reality to Christ through whom all things were made, but radical also because those who get to that root will often find themselves going against the flow of academic fashion. In other words, we have to think of ourselves as scholars, as disciples in the disciplines. Disciples in one's discipline. And that means if we're going to be a disciple in the discipline, we have to understand both what has happened in Christ and how to bear witness to that in the context of our respective disciplines. And then we also have to be willing to stake if not our lives, at least our reputations, on bearing witness to that. But when we do, like Plantinga, God can use that. He can use witnesses. We need a great cloud of witnesses in the academy. It's as if the chief character in the drama, our Lord Jesus Christ, is calling us up onto the stage of the academy and telling us, this is your part. You're a disciple in your discipline. Play it to the glory of God. And this is the privilege of being a Christian scholar in a Christian university. You get to work with others who are trying to work out what does discipleship look like in my discipline? And again, I want to suggest that this applies to seminary disciplines as well. I don't think we should read the Bible just like any other book. At least that shouldn't be the end of the story. There's some continuities and discontinuities. Uh, implication four. Christian universities must not simply teach the content of a subject, but train students to bear true witness to it. And this again hits the emphasis on formation. And this requires theological competence. You have to know the God of the gospel and the gospel of God. But it also requires, yet again, the intellectual virtues. Let me just say a, a little more about an intellectual virtue here. You probably hear about virtues in connection with morality, uh, habits of of, of doing ethical things. A virtuous person is the person who will do the right thing. But Aristotle and others have talked about intellectual virtues as well. An intellectual virtue is when you do the right thing in your mind. Or even better, it's when you're the kind of person who will live out the life of the mind in excellent ways. Unfortunately, it's easier to understand the intellectual vices. <laughs> An intellectual vice is a habit of mind that if you are in this habit, you will be led away from the truth. If you're an impatient person and don't have the time to do thorough research, that's an intellectual vice, intellectual impatience, and it's likely to lead you away from the truth. And unfortunately, because there are people in the academy, there are intellectual vices. There's dishonesty, stubbornness, carelessness, and most devastating of all, pride that I've already mentioned, the pride that leads to reductionism. So I believe that as Christian scholars, Yes, the content of our witness matters tremendously. We must bear witness to the truth of the gospel. But the manner of our witness, the way we bear witness also matters. And we Christian scholars should display all the intellectual virtues and more. Because in addition to honesty and clarity and patience, we need to display humility, that's a distinctly Christian virtue, and charity, charity to others, which means putting the best possible interpretation on what someone says instead of the worst. Because that's what I would want someone to do to me. I'd like you to do that this morning, actually. <laughs> so we're teaching content, 
But in the way we do scholarship, we're teaching character, the intellectual virtues. Well, let me bring the session to a conclusion then by summing up some things I've said. We talked about the two books, the book of nature and the book of scripture. And I want to draw a, an analogy between them. Just as the biblical text is composed of letters and words and paragraphs and different kinds of books, so the book of nature, physical reality, is composed of reality at different levels, small scale, mid scale, large scale. And here's the key point. No one level of the universe is more real than another. In other words, we can analyze words in scripture, we can analyze sentences, we can analyze paragraphs, and we can get really good at analyzing these different levels, but they all fit together. So I suggest as the book of nature. Dallas Willard shrewdly says that there's no department of reality in a university. That doesn't mean that departments don't make assumptions about reality. It just means they don't give justification for those assumptions. And I've already talked about how metaphysics can be confused with physics. Well, I've already said as well that reductionism is the sin of the university. We don't want to reduce reality in the bad sense of thinking that only our level, only the thing we study, gets to the heart of what is really real. We need to make sure we don't fall prey to that. We also need to call that out. It's an illegitimate move. The idea that everything is a matter of matter in motion is reductionist in the bad sense. But it's not only in physics. I know I've picked on the physicists this morning, so let me pick on somebody else. Uh, Edmund Wilson, was the father of sociobiology. Fairly new discipline, it's been around for a few decades. Sociobiology is the attempt to explain social behavior in biological terms. This is a classic example of disciplinary pride. Edmund Wilson, his real specialty is the study of ants, insects. Can you imagine that? His study of ants and the social behavior of ants is the template for him then to suggest that all human social behavior can ultimately be explained in terms of biology. In other words, he's reducing everything to biology. It's not just the physicists. I agree with a British philosopher of science, Arthur Peacock, and a theologian, Tom Torrance, and lots of other people who say that God has created his book, created reality, with many levels to it. There's a hierarchy. The higher levels of reality depend upon the lower levels, but you can't explain a higher level of reality in terms of the lower levels. So you and I, we're social beings, but we're also biological beings. The different sciences study different levels of our reality. What's wrong is trying to reduce everything to one level. The book of nature is complex. And when science does its work right, it should help us appreciate the marvelous way in which God has created us. It's the handiwork of the all-wise author. So we can study different levels, different aspects of texts, the book of nature and of scripture, but let's not assume that our level is the only level that matters. Just as there is one body, many members in the church, so there is one university with many departments. And then point B. Uh, here in the States, there's tremendous pressure for theology to become religious studies. I don't know if you've noticed this, but unless it's a Christian university, most universities handle what's called theology in departments of religious studies. Why is that? It's a form of reductionism. 
what we believe is a reality, God, secular universities reduce to anthropology. The study of religion is the study of human beings and their religious behavior. So it's an, it's, this is a, an, a flagrant example of reductionism in most of our universities. Now Scotland was different, which is why I got to teach real theology there. Uh, the University of Edinburgh and the other ancient universities in Scotland are secular universities, but they're also the places that train ministers for the Church of Scotland. So theology had a place in the Scottish university where we trained ministers, but that didn't mean theology was respected by the other departments necessarily. So there's pressure there as well. But I learned there that theologians should never back down when the topic of discussion is reality. Reality is what Christian theology is all about. There's contested claims as to what is most real, but I believe the task of Christian theology is to say what is. What is in the created order and what is in Jesus Christ, the new created order. The fact of the matter is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. In Christ, what is in Christ? I love that phrase because what is, is the phrase metaphysics uses to talk about reality, what is. But Christians need to say what is in Christ and what there is in Christ is the fullness of deity, true God of true God, the fullness of humanity, true humanity is in Christ, and the reconciliation of God and humanity is in Christ. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Everything we need to say about God, the world, and ourselves, and the reconciliation is in Christ. I think statements about reality that don't take the person and work of Christ into consideration are abstractions. Neither the world or anything else, that is nothing in the natural world or social world ultimately has intelligibility apart from Christ. He is the ground, grammar, and goal of the universe and of the university. And then the last point, being biblical in the academy is ultimately a matter not simply of apprehending, but of living out our knowledge of reality in Christ. Lived knowledge is another way of speaking of wisdom. And as we know from the Proverbs, wisdom, its price is beyond rubies. It's the price of tuition. <laughs> But in my ideal university classroom, students would learn not simply information, they'd learn not simply theory, not even skills, they'd learn good judgment. Good judgment, the ability to know what to do with the knowledge that we have. The ability to, to do and to choose what is good and true and beautiful, which is another way of saying the ability to judge what is fitting to the story of what God is doing in Christ. Creation is the context for wisdom. Christ is the content of wisdom. Our canon, the scriptures, is the curricula of wisdom. So everything in the Bible, you see, is part of the divine pedagogy that leads us deeper into the mystery of God deeper and further back or back to the Father of Lights. So every discipline, regardless of the, little, of the aspect of reality it studies, the level of reality, every discipline needs to rethink its ground, grammar, and goal in relation to God's plan, not only to create, but to restore all things in and through Christ. Paul says we're to present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. I think we should expand this and say that we should present our bodies of knowledge, the result of our scholarly work, 
as an offering to God as well. And it's the privilege of scholars and students of all Christian academics to participate as little photons in this economy of light. Little lights through whom the light of Jesus Christ, the light of truth, can shine through to others. This is our spiritual and reasonable worship. So may each of us learn this lesson, how all things in the universe and the university find their place in Christ Jesus. Thank you.